Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 9, The Justice of Gods and Hands. We have today with us Brooke and Matt, and as always, me, Scad. And, uh, Hello. Hello. If you go ahead and we'll do uh, our five chapters as usual. Uh, this week that's Catelyn's seventh chapter, John's fifth, Tyrion's sixth, Eddard's eleventh, and Sansa's third. That's chapters 40 to 44, according to a wiki of ice and fire. And uh, just a note to our listeners, uh, I say this every every time, we're, we're, we try to keep it spoiler-free until the end of the podcast. Uh, we have a special segment then called Davos After Dark, where we'll uh, go through and talk about whatever we feel like, whether it's spoilery or not, but we'll warn you uh, before we get there to make sure you've got plenty of time to turn it off if you don't want to be uh, ruined for the future. Uh, also, I, I always take this, this moment to uh, encourage everyone to reach out to us if you've got comments or questions. The 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 Twitter's been active, people tweeting and twatting and whatnot. Uh, it's been uh, been a really uh, plotting. <laughs> we would like more twats on our Twitter. Yes, please. please. More twits, more twats. No, but it's so much fun to to chat with you guys on Twitter. I, I love it. Yeah, I got a few emails this week as well, but uh, we enjoy them all when they come in. So uh, keep reaching out to us. If you got questions or comments? We love hearing from people. And uh, today, I'd like to start the podcast out also with a lame joke. This is a SCAD original. This has not been tested out on any audience yet, so we'll see what people think. So I'll, I'll, pose, it, I'll pose this joke to, to Matt and Brooke first. Take it away. So we have a dedicated, a dedicated fan of Song of Ice and Fire. Been, you know, been a big fan of the series for years, and he's blessed he and his wife are blessed with a son and he names he he names him rob and a few years go by and he and his wife are blessed again and uh it comes time to pick a name and uh i want you guys to tell me what he names his second son uh john ben plum brown ben plum Nailed it. The second son. I'm a bigger nerd than you are, Brooke. Um, <laughs> you asked for a rating on this joke? Zero. I don't get it. Oh, <laughs> come on. I'll give it a two. <laughs> <laughs> a two out of two. All right. A, no, a two out of like ten. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Oh, that's clever. Clever. Wasn't Brown clever Ben Plum was the leader well of... Yeah, Brown Ben Plum was the leader of a mercenary group or a sellsword group called the Second Sons. The Second Sons, which we'll meet uh, later in the uh, later in the series. So, on that note, uh, let's go ahead and dive into our first uh, chapter of analysis. Woo-hoo! It is a Catlin chapter, and Matt, I think you're going to take this one away. Words will cut you like Valyrian steel through a hand. She can't love Jon Snow, and she's sure to let you know where she stands. A devoted mother who married the brother of a dead fiancé. She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Star. Yeah, the chapter starts out on kind of a kind of a melancholy note, but uh, a beautifully written one as well. We get the story of a waterfall in the Erie called 
um, Alyssa's Tears. It is called that after uh, one Alyssa Aaron, who many moons ago saw the death of her, um, it was like her parents, her brothers, her sons, all of her whole family died except for her. And it's said that she never shed a tear once. And so this waterfall is named after her. And the waterfall is so high up in the air that the water never actually hits the ground. It evaporates before it hits the ground. Symbolic, of course, of those tears that she apparently never shed. A uh, cat finds herself watching this waterfall, ruminating on how this whole deal with Tyrion and bringing him to the Vale has gone rather sour. As we know from the last chapter, he demanded a trial by combat, which um, apparently by law or tradition or what have you, they are they do feel obliged to honor. And so this very morning that she's gazing out onto Alyssa's tears, she will be soon witnessing the battle between Tyrion's champion Bronn and uh, Liza's champion Vardis. Egan, a famous knight of the Erie. Uh, as they go to the duel, her and Roderick Cassell are walking down to the duel grounds, as it were, which is going to be held in an old, what was supposed to be a god's wood. Uh, they run into Cat's uncle, Brendan, the blackfish. He is fuming. He's furious because uh, there is trouble brewing in River Run, where he's from, between his family and the Lannisters. And Brynden had asked Liza for a thousand men of the Erie to go and support River Run. And he was shot down. Um, Liza is, as we know, very paranoid at this point, very batty, and she didn't want to spare a single soul. So she wouldn't let him, and, and, and Brynden says he's out of there, he's leaving. Uh, he's going to go support River Run himself. And Kat calms him down and says, hey, you know, just wait this out, and then you can come with us. We'll go to Winterfell. I'll give you a 1,000 men, and then you can go to River Run. So he, he agrees to that. And they continue going to where the duel will take place. She runs into Lysa. Kat is determined to talk to Lysa about this whole thing. She wants to, as she told Roderick, remind uh, Liza, that Tyrion is actually her prisoner, and she should, she feels, have some say in what happens to him. Uh, she tries to talk sensibly. She notes that they have nothing to gain by killing Tyrion. Liza won't hear it. In fact, she brings up the fact that little Robert wants to see Tyrion fly, and basically that's that. Um, the duel begins. Vardis Egan walks out. Uh, remember that this is uh, not so much a duel, um, well, it is, I suppose. Yeah, it is just pretty much a duel. And the winner means, uh, determines whether Tyrion goes free or not. They're basically putting it in the hands of the quote-unquote gods, saying that the gods will bless whoever is innocent by allowing that champion to win. So Vardis Egan, Liza's champion, walks out. He's heavily armored. Uh, Martin is quick to note that he's got just a very small slit uh, in his helmet to see through, and so his visibility is very limited, as also is his agility being in all that armor. Braun comes out in next to nothing, hardly armored at all. They begin to fight. Braun is just dancing around him a little bit, uh, despite the heckles and jeers of the people watching the duel. Uh, he's just jumping around. He doesn't care what they think. And Roderick Cassell notes to Catelyn that he's doing it to make Vardis Egan tired. Egan is trying to keep up with him and at the same time is expending a lot of energy trying to be agile in all of that armor. And then we get into Bronn, you know, floating like a butterfly and stinging 
And like a bee, he uh, he starts to strike here and there, and he's just doing little, like I said, stings on, on Egan. He's cutting him here, slicing him there a little bit, not going for the killing blow, but all the while weakening him more and more and more. Braun eventually weakens him to the point that he's able to knock one of the statues in the area where they're fighting over on top of Egan. And then uh, ever merciless as Braun is, he goes for the killing blow and kills Vardis Egan. Of course, this uh, disappoints little Robert Aaron to no end. Uh, but Tyrion is, of course, overjoyed and uh, deeming that the gods have proven Tyrion's innocence. He takes his leave and Liza in the final um, part of the chapter, sends him away on the high road, which some might view as a death sentence into itself because of all the dangers that are on the high road. And that's where the chapter ends. It was a fun, fight-filled, exciting chapter. Um, but uh, we have an interesting thing going on with Catelyn that I want to start out with. On one hand... What do they have to gain by killing Tyrion other than more enemies? And by more enemies, we mean the Lannisters, the richest, arguably one of the most powerful families in the whole kingdom in all of Westeros. On the other hand, what else can Catelyn do at that point? Uh, Tyrion has demanded a trial by combat. And even though she's trying to remind Liza, hey, he's my prisoner, what else can she do besides honor that? So we've got a very confusing and conflicting situation that Cat finds herself in. Yeah, she's right? really she's really lost control over that whole capturing Tyrion thing. But she never anticipated that bringing him to the Vale under Liza's care would, would be this disastrous because as, as, as noted when she reunited with Liza, she has, Liza has changed dramatically. And, and I really enjoyed your description of her, Matt Batty. She's <laughs> a little Batty. So like, I, yeah, there's just, there's nothing to do. Uh, but stand back and be dignified about letting this shit show happen. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. almost it's almost like uh all this kind of puffing herself up about he's my prisoner and, and all this stuff. It's it's crying over spilled milk. You spilled the milk chapters ago, right? <laughs> when when you when you let this get this far down the path, right? You're it's now out of control. There's nothing you can do. They have to do the trial. They've put in, been they've been put in that position. Tyrion's demanded it. They can't do anything else. There's no there's no other real choice. I don't know when Tyr when 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 Catelyn comes down and she's like, "Well, I'm just going to remind her that he's my prisoner." All right, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. you know, it's too late for all of that. You needed to do that before, you know. Well, she did. Yeah. She did it in an earlier chapter. She did say, "I you know he's my prisoner." Um, I'm certainly not sticking up too much for Catelyn, but boy, that's a rough situation. Like Brooke said, to come home and find that your your little sister's batty, as we said. Um, on one hand, I do respect that when Bronn won the duel and Tyrion won his freedom, Liza didn't really argue with the will of the gods, which you kind of felt like it was leading up to she would have, and like right. and made him fly anyways. But even though she banished them to the high road, she'd supply them with food and horses and all that. But I'm surprised that uh, Catelyn didn't make another move at this point. Because <laughs> now Tyrion's up for grabs again. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true. So. 
Yeah. You, you mean you mean like wait until he gets outside the gate and then grab him again? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ha! You know that she'll go to extremes. That second extreme would not be unpredicted. Yeah, but it did go so well last time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah, it's almost like a, a double jeopardy thing, maybe. Right? It's like, well, she could grab him. She could bring him back to the Irie again. Or she could go on the high road, but she doesn't like her chances there. She brings it back right. to the Irie. It's just the double jeopardy thing, which I don't know. Maybe they don't have a precedent for that or something. I don't know. But yeah, well, she, I, she's out of options, really. But she, I, she brought, she brought herself there. It's, it, it really has been just a slow downhill from the beginning. And we've been, had several Catlin chapters up to now. It's three, I think, since she grabs him, and we're all like, "What a horrible choice!" Right? And she grabs him, but it's just a slow burn downhill to the point where she had just no control over the situation. Yeah. And she recognizes it by the end of the chapter. And she even ruminates on the fact that she's got to get to Winterfell now. That's where she belongs. She's got to get a move on. Yeah. She's cutting her losses at this point. Isn't she? Yeah. She's grabbing another boat. And uh... like, I mean, these are very, Catelyn is a very religious person. Do you think when something like this happens where she's convinced of guilt, of of somebody for something in this case Tyrion and the trial goes this way do you think she actually believes that the gods have shown her that Tyrion is innocent like as a religious person does she actually believe that or is it just well that's the way the court system works and i don't know yeah i don't think that she truly has uh, that kind of faith or that kind of you know belief in the in the divine interference or something uh, she even as she's walking down um to the fight she calls it a mummer's farce so i think she thinks it's kind of a stupid thing to do in the first place uh, that's not exactly what you're asking though you're asking that after the fight does she believe that and not that even just was, her anybody was, like did, there was some sort of divine intervention this is part of the court system, right? And right, they it all is. acknowledge that this is what happens when, you know, when a trial by combat occurs. This is what happens, and we all get it, and we're going to abide by that rule. And as Brooke said, even mm-hmm. Lysa kind of stands for it and says, okay, that's that's the way it works. But does anyone actually believe the gods have intervened and said he's innocent? Or is it is it just kind of like, well, that's just the way the system works? I think it's more of the latter. It's more of the latter. Just yeah. interesting about... what, what role religion really plays in this series, right? Mm-hmm. Just kind of interesting. How about Braun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he... I thought that you were going to wax on his uh, daring fight techniques a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you were saving it for now. I was saving it for now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, for our audience, just an FYI, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Matt loves braun in fact his skype nickname is braun.com i think i used it as a hashtag today on a tweet as well <laughs> yeah um i think because i'm so different from who braun is i'm he's so merciless and everything and i'm not that way at all i'm such a pushover and a crybaby and stuff uh, so he's it's sometimes those exact opposites are the people that you're drawn to i will give that you have a lot more honor than he does Thank you. Speaking of, in your chapter summary, you mentioned that Braun gave the knight he was fighting a merciful killing stroke uh, under his uh, little mail or armor vest thing. Listen to me. Sounds like a really 
<laughs> read that detail carefully. Anyways, yeah, his best thing. Yeah, yeah, his between, best it was thing. between Metal. it was under the arm, right? Like yeah. Right. However, yeah. whenever we've had. We haven't witnessed a, a whole bunch of duels except for during the hands tourney. But whenever somebody talks about a past duel, there has been mention of a yield. Um, Happens one... in this chapter, right? They talk about Peter. Well, and... But that's the thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, the, they, they they reference a duel in this chapter in Catelyn's memory of Peter and, and Brandon's duel, right? And there's, yeah. there's a yield moment, right? Brandon was, I would say, fair to Peter, Peter being half his age and obviously bitten off more than he could chew. Uh, Brandon still treated him like a worthy opponent, um, actually fighting him, actually wounding him, and also actually offering him the opportunity to yield in like an honorable fashion. Um, I understand that the duel between Braun and uh, Liza's knight was not over honor it was like a, a matter of justice but Bron didn't stop like he he saw the opportunity to to pierce this guy's heart and he's like i'm going for it there was no yeah. there was no yield there was he didn't even like like look up to Tyrion to to say should i kill this guy it was just like ah an opportunity for bloodshed i will take it yeah absolutely i don't, I don't... he could have just kicked the guy over I, first of all, I don't think that legally that what you do, you got to kill him. Yeah. Um, I, I think so. Like, cause that's, that's definitive proof from the gods. And, and in a, on a related note, I think Tyrion or Braun as Tyrion's right arm in this, uh, wanted to leave no doubt, you know, Liza, you talked about how, you know, begrudgingly gracious she was at the end and, and letting him walk and letting him leave after the results of the duel. But if, if Vardis had somehow lived, she might've been able to twist that around and say, Oh, the gods aren't sure or something because it wasn't a clean victory, you know, a clean victory or something like that. Yeah. So bronze leaving, leaving no doubt he's, he's going to end it. Uh, it's, it's due to his practical nature. Yeah, I get that it's his I mean, I feel like we, we do have precedent for for those duels ending in less than death and it still being evident of a win. I don't I don't know where that I feel like there's precedent for that. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, I can't think of any. We can look into it. Whatever. Uh, but I don't think he's losing sleep that night. No, this is the same guy who we find out in a later chapter, you know, slit his buddy's throat. Oh, yeah. Or not slit his throat, but but knocked off his buddy. So this is a guy who who's going to do what he's asked to do or is getting paid to do is the is the better way to say it. But, yeah, I think you put it well, bro. He's not losing sleep over it. He did it. No. He didn't hesitate, didn't care. It was, it was Matt just another action. over his bed. He what? <laughs> Matt keeps bronze poster over his bed. Indeed. Uh, we referenced another duel that I'd like to bring up, and that is the one, the flashback that uh, that uh, Catelyn has of Littlefinger and Brandon Stark dueling. This is our first good look into who Brandon Stark was, Eddard's older brother, and um, Peter uh, vying for Catelyn's hand. He challenges Brandon to a duel after he finds out about the arranged betrothal between uh, Brandon and Catelyn. So unlike Littlefinger, though, right? Was this kind of a turning point for him? Is this kind of what started Littlefinger on the path to being the Littlefinger we know today? It's well, we, got to be. Yeah, we don't know, but it it seems logical, right? It's like uh, he, he Peter has 
as a as a young boy taken the steps uh that you would traditionally take to woo someone in this way right so he's following he's following the courtly rules and what he learned is that the courtly rules aren't going to benefit him right and so he learned I, yeah it, it seems like he learned from this experience that he's going to have to turn the tides in his favor in different ways because he's not going to be benefiting from the way things are done i, I mean, agree yeah, he's yeah. he's a guy that he followed his heart once in this case, and and it let him down, and so no more. He's got to find a new way to get to the top. He's not going to be able to do it by any sort of emotions or uh, or favors or anything. He's just got to do it himself by being cunning and using his wits. Well, I'm not even saying he won't follow his heart. I'm just saying he'll follow his heart and do it in. Uh, I'll use it again. Backdoorsy dastardly ways rather than upfront courtly customary ways right he's mm-hmm. he's gonna play dirty to get there right yeah now and what i meant by that is he 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 somehow believed that he could just by being little finger and having a good heart or whatever well, and not having any land or being peter baelish i shouldn't say little finger could somehow win catelyn tully and that let him down he couldn't do it just on those things alone He's got to be like you said. Yeah, backdoorsy. Backdoorsy. <laughs> so yeah, it it definitely would be a good candidate for a turning point in his life for him to become very emotionally stunted and yep. um, withholding, which allows him to become more cunning and manipulative. But also a turning point maybe for um, not obsession, but he certainly has a type, and that type is the Tullys and. It's reflected in his behavior around Sansa, which is certainly creepy. More on that later yeah. in the chapter. Teaser. Good setup, Brooke. Yeah, well, it's it's happening during this cast, so that's right. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of uh, time-wise kind of got to move on, uh, but but there was a, an interesting. We'll just cover this real quick. There was an interesting piece of information, almost like a. Almost like the drunken clown wanders on stage and drops a piece of information and then wanders off, kind of holding his tongue, thinking he shouldn't have said it. Uh, Maester Coleman drops the bomb that uh, little Robert Aaron was supposed to go to Dragonstone to be fostered uh, with Stannis, which is different than what we heard before, uh, that he was scheduled to go to Casterly Rock uh, to be fostered there. I'm not really sure what it means, you know, other than in the previous chapter, I came down harder on John, on John Aaron saying, you know, why isn't he doing anything to make sure his son is raised better? And this is an indication that he was looking to try to do that and that he didn't trust Casterly Rock, that he wanted to go to Dragonstone. Is there more to it than that? Do we learn much from this? Not yet. And not yet, but worth noting. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Yeah. It's interesting. It's kind of a, you get the feeling Maester Coleman's like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Whoops. <laughs> like, I'll stay out of it now. Just kind of sinks away. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, Brooke, you want to take us through John's chapter? Yes, I do. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. So here's the situation up at the wall. 
Reportedly, there are five new recruits coming up the King's Road, so Sir Alistair is reluctantly advancing eight of the trainees into the official Night's Watch. Uh, although he does forewarn them that when winter comes, they're going to die like flies. The eight that he advances include John, Gren, and Pip, but alas, not Samwell. Um, Sam wishes John well, but he's obviously devastated about being left behind and kind of scoots out of the impromptu celebrations and he skips dinner that night too. So here we get a better explanation of sort of like the hierarchy at the wall, which is really interesting. Uh, When a black brother is sworn in, they get assigned to one of three groups, builders who maintain the wall, stewards who farm and do the grunt work at the castle or the most glamorous of the three, the rangers who range and track beyond the wall and do the brunt of the protecting slash fighting. So your name isn't likely to be included in a bard's song when you're stewarding. So being a ranger is where it's at. And all of John's friends predict that he'll be assigned to the rangers being the best sword and the best writer of their class. Um, John isn't actually all that excited about it. Um, he's actually more endearingly worried about Sam being missing from the, their little celebration. So he ends up going on a lone horse ride to think things through, mostly thoughts about being a bastard, because what would a John chapter be without that reminder? But when he gets back, he goes straight to Master Eamon and does a fantastic job of arguing for Master Eamon to use his influence with the Lord Commander to have Samwell sworn as a Black Brother and assigned as a steward. Mr. Eamon's current assistant slash caretaker, Chet, points out that Sam isn't cut out for steward's work any more than he could ever be cut out as a ranger. Um, he needs to know how to butcher meat and plow fields and gather firewood and cook meals and pretty much uh, explains why being a steward at the wall sucks. Um, But uh, John defends his suggestion by pointing out that Sam can read to Maester Eamon, who is blind, and also help care for the message ravens because, um, and I quote, animals seem to like Sam, which is a great reason. (laughs) Uh, Master Eamon says he'll think about it. And uh, yeah, that's the end of the chapter. Um, I was super into this chapter since it was so revealing about both life at the wall and also because we get some more details on the maester's chains. So what all of the medals mean, um, why they uh, forged links connected to their studies. And I just found it really interesting, like gold for uh, money and silver for, uh, I think it was weaponry uh, and iron for uh, war. Very, very cool. Um, it was just a, a good way to uh, dig some some new nuggets out about uh, uh, life in Westeros. Um, anyways, so what do you guys think of John defending Sam and trying to uh, get him out of Sir Alistair's clutches? Oh, first of all, how, how about Al- Alistair Thorne's graduation speech, huh? Inspiring. <laughs> most inspiring graduation speech ever get him on the touring circuit (laughs) yeah this guy's gonna go start speaking to universities you know i thought it was really cool i love that um john's starting to well he's walking a a 
a good middle ground, isn't he? He still is reflecting a lot on his own position, but he doesn't keep it all inside. He he definitely reaches out outside of himself a little bit and is going for those cripples and bastards and broken things motif. Um, and, and what a clever way to do it. This kid's still only 14 or 15 years old, and uh, he masterfully dealt with the much more experienced and wise maester Eamon. Not that he tricked him or anything like that, but he was very confident in in expressing his side of things. Yeah, Maester Eamon is definitely listening to him. Definitely respects where John is coming from and finds credibility in his um, intentions. Ooh, I like that credibility. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just um, it's it's another step in John's development. I mean, we we've seen. We've seen him defend the weak in a in a reactive manner when something's right in front of him and someone's physically attacking him. He's defending him. What we see here is John having to think a little bit to do his defending of the weak. Right? He's got to think ahead and and plan ahead and really strategize on the best way to do this. It's not just protecting somebody from getting hit with a sword. It's mentally working through some arrangement that will help him. Right, and so it's a, it's a little bit of a it's it's not just it's not just having the spine to do it. It's it's having the capability uh, mentally to pull it off. And so uh, to me, it's to, it's a to do it effectively. Yeah, it's a, it's another rung on on John's development as we see him kind of just growing into a leader and 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 seeing some of those some of those qualities. And you know, you kind of hope he can make himself make himself into something here at the Night's Watch. Mm-hmm. Speaking of rungs, John's literally as a bastard is at the bottom of the social ladder right he he's not a he's of a group that has little to no respect and in the world of westeros and yet even with that stigma that's been placed upon him or that stereotype he remains a remarkably social and a remarkably good people person. Not that he's out chatting everybody up like like the popular kids at school, but uh, he he earns this respect of both people who seem a little beneath him, the 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 Samuel Tarleys and the Pips and stuff of the world, as well as people who are seemingly very high above him in, in Maester Eamon. He he earns respect very easily, and he works very well with anyone in any situation. Uh, it's it's a very good quality to have, and it's cool to see him develop it. Well, that's one of the things that's great about the Night's Watch, is that that you know while they're still throwing around the term bastard and everything, you know people up here are more on equal footing, and John, at least socially, yeah, right? socially, right. And so he's he is able to grow a little bit, and uh, you know experience. He doesn't have he those social barricades. Yes, yeah. right. Experience things he wasn't able to experience before because of those barricades. Yeah. yeah, we got an interesting look at just what he's walking into as well in this chapter um, as he goes off in his little lone ride, which I picture in modern days would be like he'd be driving like a, a RAV4 convertible and he'd take it <laughs> in the middle of the night, go park on it, the beach it, and stare it over the ocean. It made me think of a common practice of mine. I used to go out on drives at night when I needed to think and I'd throw on Counting Crows a long December. Oh, I listen wow. to that as you drive. 
and like crank it up. There's, Roll up your uh, windows so you can't hear anything else. Just crank it. There's reason and, to and, believe that this one will be better than the last. Yeah, a long December is very fitting for a man at the Night's Watch, right? Yeah. But uh, that that song will change your life, man, if you're in the right state of mind. That's a yeah. good song. <laughs> I think that song came like... out my senior year of high school. We we drove around a lot listening to that uh, that stuff. But uh, yeah, good good tune, Matt. Good call. Yeah. It remind that that reminds me, Brooke. Uh, I put it in the notes. Uh, I didn't think of it until I read your note. Um, but it reminds me of the scene from one of my favorites. Rocky Four, where Stallone gets in the gets in the car and he's he's thinking about uh, Apollo's death and he's driving around listening to "There's No Easy Way Out," trying to decide what he needs to do, what steps he's <laughs> gonna take. It's kind of the same exact thing. John's you know riding his horse around, looking down the road. What ta- what path is he gonna take? How's he gonna accomplish this? Very very. Wait, Rocky Apollo IV. dies. <laughs> yeah, spoilers. Spoilers. Spoiler <gasps> Sorry. Oh, oh goodness. I hope there's at least one member of our audience who's watched the first Rocky, let alone got to the fourth. <laughs> oh, no, I, I like Rocky Four. If you didn't get to the fourth, you're missing out. The fourth is the best one. Yeah. Okay, I'll skip to that one. It'll go on my Netflix. Queue. You haven't seen the Rocky films? No. Oh man, this is Brooke we're talking about here. It won a it won an Oscar, and I don't mean that as a dig, Brooke. Didn't it's it win back? Rocky, really? Rocky's like a good story. I mean, Rocky Four is a just... lot of boxing and a lot of working out and a lot of testosterone stuff. But testosterone. Uh, it's a San Francisco treat. That's a friend's joke. Um, the worst tasting luncheon meat ever. But oh. Rocky, Rock, the, the original Rocky's a good story. Good character development. Uh, it's it's really good. You should check it out, Brooke. Yeah, totally. Guys hitting each other in the face sounds like a quality use of my time. There's See, you're validating what I just film. said. It's just not your. It's not your thing. It's okay. No, it's not any rational person's thing. Anyways, back on track. Yeah, John's. Not. What John was thinking about was just the, like, the devastating commitment that the Night's Watch is. Oh, never finality. Be, yeah, he'll never be able to travel beyond the wall except for the Night Watch's work. And if he does become a ranger, as predicted, then he'll only be going north of the wall. And that's not too terribly exciting, nor uh, exotic. He'll never be able to marry, have a family, you know, create connections other than those with his black brothers. Like, he's in it for life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot for a 14-year-old kid. But uh, he seems, seems pretty together, yeah. pretty, pretty ready to make the commitment. Well, it's it's a it's a really it's just one paragraph really where it's talking about that as he's looking down the road and what he's giving up, and the reader should remember that John has said already that he doesn't want to have kids. He doesn't want. He's he said to Benjamin, I think it was in one of those early chapters, he doesn't even want to yeah. have sex with women because he doesn't want the chance of creating a bastard kid. So he doesn't want kids. He doesn't want to be sleeping with women. He's that's those are things that he's already giving up. So to mm-hmm. him, those vows, they're. Not to say they're less meaningful, but he's already going to not do that anyway, according to him. But but what he's really giving up is, you know, if he ever gets wanderlust, too bad. You know, he cannot go explore this amazing world he's in. He's tied. Death, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff, Brooke. Um, anything else from this chapter before we move on? Yeah, I just want to describe one meal that uh, the boys ate in celebration of in celebration of the chance of being sworn in as a black brother. Just 
a quality meal description from George. And I'm so glad that people have developed like cookbooks and entire podcasts dedicated to the food in a Game of Thrones yeah. because it is fantastic. Listen to this. Uh, rack of lamb baked in crust of garlic and herbs, which is okay. I don't eat meat, so I guess that's good for some people. I'm drooling but over here. Garnished yeah. with springs of mint, A+, surrounded by mashed yellow turnips swimming in butter. Swimming in butter! Mmm. Yeah, Salads of spinach awesome. and chickpeas and turnip greens, and afterwards bowls of iced blueberries and sweet cream. Oh, blueberries! That's like ice cream. Worcesterhouse ice cream. Favorite. Yeah. So good. Yeah, you had me at rack of lamb. <laughs> I was going to question refrigeration technology, but I guess they got a huge fucking wall of ice right next to them. So, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, true. Pro- probably okay. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted to mention. All right. Let's go. Uh, let's go and move on to, uh, to Tyrion's chapter. Matt, take it away. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion Lannister or Imp, if you please. Yeah, thanks, Scott, for giving me the two bronze chapters, throwing me a nice bone there. It's the only one you'll we... ever get. <laughs> I'll take advantage of it. Get ready for some brawn. They're taking the high road. Um, we find Tyrion and Bronn having already left the Eyrie and are continuing down the high road. Of course, always dangerous with threats of clansmen, shadow cats, uh, uneven ground, very dangerous um, type of a very dangerous path. Bronn has the idea to move as quickly as possible. No fires being as quiet as they can, just get through this, get through the other side, and maybe they have a chance of making it. Tyrion wants to take the more scenic route. Uh, he he says that if they're going to die, let's die comfortably. Um, he does reveal that he does have a, a bit of a plan, or he calls it more of a hope, really, if they are discovered or if they are attacked by clansmen. Uh, Bronn does threaten to leave Tyrion there, and Tyrion goes, I kind of knew that you would stick with me. Uh, and they go back and forth for a while, with Bronn eventually staying, agreeing to stay with Tyrion for now, kind of on retainer a little bit, with Tyrion assuring him that no matter what someone offers to pay Bronn to go over to, to their side or to leave Tyrion's service, or heaven forbid, betray Tyrion, just to remember that Tyrion will always pay more than whoever else there is. Something that's got to be incredibly comforting for old Brawny. As they're settling in for the night, uh, Tyrion talks of the first girl he ever bedded. So his first um, romp in the sack. Uh, And I think that although we want to keep these summaries a little bit curt, it does bear repeating this story a little bit with a little bit of detail. Uh, So years ago when, when Tyrion was a very young teenager, I think he's around 13, uh, he and Jamie are riding through the woods close to where they live in Lannisport, and they hear a girl screaming and see her running from two men. Jamie chases the men down while Tyrion stays with the young lass. Uh, she was lowborn, she was a crofter's daughter. <clears throat> As Jamie's off chasing the men, Tyrion gets to know her a little bit, takes her to an inn to give her something to eat, get her warmed up and calmed down, while Jamie, of course, continues his pursuit. Uh, and they do end up sleeping together. Tyrion and this girl whose name is Taisha. 
uh, Tyrion admits that he fell in love that night and he was married to her. He says they found a drunken septon and they got married. Of course, Tyrion knew that his father would never approve of him marrying a lowborn daughter. And so Tyrion sets her up in a cottage some distance away and continues to take care of her just so dad won't find out. Uh, the septon, however, who married them, eventually comes to his senses, sobers up, and confesses to Tywin of what he'd done. Tywin confronts Tyrion with Jaime, and he makes Jaime reveal to Tyrion that Jaime had arranged the whole thing. It was all an act just to get Tyrion a girl. Um, and after disappointing Tyrion in that way, just to just to drive the nail in a little bit further and increase uh, Tywin's chances of winning father of the century in Westeros. Uh, Tywin gave Tysha to his guardsmen, saying that he would pay a silver coin for each one that had sex with her. Uh, and Tyrion notes that by the time they were all done, she had more silver coins than she could carry. Tywin, and then just to make it even worse, Tywin makes Tyrion watch as they do all of this. And then he makes him go last. And then he gives Tyrion a gold coin to pay Tysha. Ah, so we get a little bit of insight into where Tyrion's coming from. Uh, just as they're finishing this story, though, uh, clansmen do attack Tyrion and Bronn, just as they'd kind of expected, uh, and they are going to kill them. Tyrion makes some rather off-color jokes to lighten the situation, and they agree to let Tyrion live kind of as a little jester for their clansmen to make the kids laugh, but they are going to kill Bronn. But then Tyrion makes them an offer. He insults their weapons, which I think takes a lot of balls, um, talks about how bad their weapons are, and he talks about how fine of craftsmen and blacksmiths there are where he lives at Casterly Rock, and they can make him new weapons. And he would give them all the weapons they needed. And they're like, Meh, maybe. And then Tyrion says, ah, but I have one more thing that I will give you if you let us live, and that is the Vale of Aaron. End of chapter. Yeah, that's wow. a big promise. Yeah, <laughs> heavy. It's a little weird to promise something that's not yours to give. Also something that's completely impenetrable. Yeah. yeah. But it's something they um it's something that uh that they want. So I wanted to to talk a little bit about these clansmen, where they come from and who they are. I don't know that we had a ton of information on them before, but we do get a little bit of information in the new World of Ice and Fire book. Uh, so I did just want to read a quick blurb from there. It won't take long at all, telling us a little bit more about these clans of, of the mountain men. It says, the clans of the mountain of the moon are clearly descendants of the first men who did not bend the knee to the Andals, and so were driven into the mountains. Furthermore, there are similarities in their customs uh, to the customs of the wildlings beyond the wall, such as bride-stealing, a stubborn desire to rule themselves, and the like. And the wildlings are indisputably descended from the first men. So what we're getting here, and remember, this is a maester talking uh, who may be influenced by his own opinions and things like that. But what we find out is these are actually descendants from the first men. They are untouched uh, by the traditions of the Andals and the later traditions of Westeros. And from what we understand, these were actually the first inhabitants of the Vale. So this sounds very intriguing to them in that they're getting back land that is supposedly, according to them, theirs to begin with. Oh. Yeah, that's shades. fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Shades of uh, 
our current Israeli-Palestine battles, right? Both sides feeling like they own and, and belong to it, right? Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're obviously very intrigued by that opportunity. And these men have been driven into the mountains against their wills by the Andals. And so the idea of living in an impenetrable you know, fortress probably sounds very appealing to them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but we still don't know if they accept the offer or not, do we? We'll find out in later chapters. Yeah. It's, it's, it is, I want to go back, it is a weird thing for Tyrion to promise. I mean, T- Tyrion, yeah. Tyrion usually is promising gold, right? It's something he can very easily deliver. He's promised more gold, he's promised brawn gold, and more gold, and more gold, as long as he stays on his side in this chapter. Those are things he can pay. Giving them the, giving them the veil is a, that's a steep promise. And uh, he's going to yeah. have to, you know, assuming they accept, would have to pull a rabbit out of his hat to pull that off. You might be pulling a classic Tyrion move, which is just say whatever to buy yes. more time. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's exactly Stay what alive he's doing. For Tyrion's now. He's so it's fascinating. A move because I've adopted into my regular life. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's fascinating about him is he always does seem to be thinking two steps ahead, but then all of a sudden he'll throw in this thing that's just to buy time, you know? So uh, it, it, he's, he kind of vacillates back and forth between, you know, having this well-thought-out plan to execute and then just, I got to do something. I'll figure it out later. Uh, which goes maybe to his credit to the confidence that he has in himself. I liked looking at the differences between Bronn and Tyrion in this chapter and the way that they think both very logical thinkers. However, I think perhaps the step up, if we could call it that, that Tyrion might have is that he is always thinking kind of one step ahead. Uh, Bronn's whole idea through, you know, at the beginning of the chapter and his argument with Tyrion is we just got to stay alive. And that's all he's thinking about. How do I stay alive to get from here to here? Whereas Tyrion reveals that he does have this plan and, and I don't know how far ahead he thought about the promising the veil to these um, men of the mountain, but um, he did already know that if the clansmen were to come upon them, he would have to talk his way out of it, uh, which maybe again goes to the confidence that he has in himself to talk his way out of anything. And maybe that's why he was so comfortable just saying, nah, light a fire, let's get some food, let's take it easy, because he knew he could talk his way out of it. Uh, and also, I think that there's something, uh, a certain amount of confidence that he has in Braun, knowing that. Whereas Tyrion's limitation always was physical, uh, now he has that physical limitation um, vicariously through Braun.com. So. I think what I think what Tyrion's done here is he's he's forcing this exchange to happen on his terms. They could try to sure. like stay alive at night and ride and do these things, and maybe they'll come. Maybe the clansmen will come down on them. Maybe they won't, but they don't know when, and maybe they'll just ambush and kill them. In this way, he's kind of forcing the terms to be on his own. Uh, the baseball analogy. When I was young, learning how to play the shortstop position uh, in baseball, you're taught to charge the ball and take it on your terms, so that it's not you're not having to deal with whatever hops it gives you the ball, but you can you can control which hops you're dealing with. And uh, it's kind of that that same idea. Tyrion is saying, "Light the fire. Let's deal with it right here. I can talk to them here. I know they're coming here. I know how they'll come." and we can just deal with it and get it right out in the open. He doesn't believe for a second they can get through this place without them being uh, ambushed or attacked in some way. 
Yeah, and, and despite that not knowing exactly what the outcome will be, I admire that Tyrion has enough confidence in himself yeah. and probably in Braun too that they can get out of it. Whatever, yeah. you know, comes their way, they can handle it. Yeah, this chapter gives us a little insight too though, perhaps to why he has this calm confidence and why he will walk willingly into the arms of fate when he has very little control over a situation is that nothing could get any worse for Tyrion. Now we know that his very worst is watching his wife being raped by at least 30 men and then, oh, and then raping her himself. Yeah. Forget, so, forget sloppy seconds. He got sloppy 30 seconds. Yeah. Just, uh, by the way, I feel like that was just gratuitous on George's part, yes. but it, it does serve well to, instill some horror in the reader and to also increase the empathy that we have for Tyrion as a character. Cause I think we've, we, we all agree that we all love Tyrion and his love Tyrion's charm. But uh, now we know that not only is he dealing with his, his physical um, differences, the fact that he's a Lannister, the fact that he has to deal with his family, um, the fact that he is always putting up with discrimination and uh, people underestimating him. He's also just had the shittiest of lives. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of privilege he has through wealth. Nobody should have to go through that kind of just tragedy. So as a result, I feel that him and Braun are not only connecting on a level in which they both have sort of the same sense of humor. They're both clever. They can feed off of each other. They're also connecting on a level in which they're, they're survivors, but they're not really living for anything either. So mm. them coming down the high road, is, they're, they're probably going to come out all right on the other end because they really have nothing to lose. That's an wow. interesting question. Brooke. Well said, I don't Brooke. know that I've ever asked that question. What is Tyrion living for? It's very, it's a, it's a deep question for sure. Mm. Um, he did have visions of what he would like to do to his father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For killing his father, which I fully support at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a heartbreaking story. And, and, you know, we talked earlier in this episode already about, about Peter Baelish and, and this life forming event that happened to him and what impact it had. You know, this this is a life-forming instance that has made Tyrion the way he is today. He Definitely. sleeps with whores as, and doesn't create, you know, emotional connections to them. He, you know, it's, it's, it's a very weird thing that he's gone through this experience where he was convinced that this woman was, you know, going to be his wife and then became a whore, and now all he sleeps with are whores. And, um, you know, a huge reason in the way he is today, kind of emotionally shattered uh, by this event. And it, it totally affects how he behaves. Definitely. It was so formative. He'll never, ever believe a woman who says, I like you for who you are. You don't have to pay right. if, if that were to ever come up. It doesn't matter how how likely you're convincing or how compatible they are. It'll He'll never believe it. Never this has been drilled into him that he never deserves real love. That's sad. Yeah, it is. And you know, what's you 
actually, no, no, I'm not going to say it because I think it could give away too much about what we haven't gotten into yet. Uh, put a pin in it. I'll, I'll talk about later of what I think Tyrion's living for. We'll talk about it at a later time. Okay. All right. But <laughs> Excellent. I want to know. We need to flesh out more of Tyrion and Tywin's character before I, I feel comfortable revealing it. Suffice to say, it's more than wine and wars. <laughs> right. All right. Very uh, good. Let's uh, let's move on. Unless anybody's got anything uh, key for the from the Tyrion chapter they want to hit before we move on. Just that I love where Tyrion and Bronn are going together. It's so cool. The high road. Oh, you meant like uh, metaphorically, relationship wise. Yeah, I think that I think they're going to be a good team. All right. So uh, moving on to Ned's chapter. Winter is coming. Like a dire wolf prowling in the dark He'll take off your head But his friends call him Ned Warden of the North, yeah, he's Eddard Stark So, uh, Ned starts off and he is sitting the Iron Throne in place of King Robert They mention uh, a line that says the king should never sit easy um, It's a, an, old, an old line that the original... Targaryen king said, and as he said that, he had a throne a throne created that is just a jagged monstrosity of swords melded together, melted down, uh, using fire from Balerion the Black Dread, a huge dragon, melted down these swords and then reformed it into this throne that is awesome. But basically, it's deadly. Like, if you sit on it and relax, you can cut yourself badly. Um, and, and so no king can ever sit that throne, uh, easily. Uh, you're, you're always conscientious of it and it's, it's not a comfortable sit, which I think is a, a good metaphor for being king. Um, so we, we see Ned late in the day. Uh, he's hearing the case of some brigands invading the Riverlands, the, the Riverlands, the Riverlands, uh, which is where the Tullys, uh, hold sway. Um, and it turns out that, that the people that have been, uh, harmed in these uh, invasions, believe they're not just brigands; they're Lannisters up to up to no good. Um, basically, these these uh, assumed Lannister brigands have butchered, um, broken, burned everything in their path, killing uh, as as is convenient to anyone that gets in their way that they feel like killing. At one point, they talk about a young boy that was being prodded by lances, just poked at and played with until one of them just runs him through. Uh, that's how callously they were dealing with human life, these brigands. But, but it's, it's, all, it's all somewhat speculative. Uh, so Ned is seeking proof that it was the Lannisters that did it. So they, they get a few, a few of the people that were there to give some accounts. Uh, one guy is uh, noted as having worked with horses all his life. Uh, and notes that these were these were war horses. They weren't plow horses. They weren't the common horses someone might steal from a farm or anything like that. They were war horses, trained to be, uh, you know, used in war. And uh, that another one steps up, talking about the biggest man anyone had ever seen was leading them. Um, this seems to tip the scales a little bit into people believing that it's the Lannisters and that it is the mountain that rides, uh, Gregor Clegane, that is that is behind it. And so there's a whole bunch of hot arguing between the two sides about whether or not it was them and whether that's enough proof. And they're trying to gauge why Tywin would have commanded something like this. 
uh, and Ned suspects that maybe he's commanding this, he's having them go rustle up all this trouble in order to spread the Riverlands uh, armies thin, because it's mentioned earlier in the chapter that they're kind of gathering their forces. All this stuff is kind of coming to a head with the capture of Tyrion and and everything, so they're just kind of all trying to suss out exactly what's going on here. And then Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, takes a step back and he's like, what are you guys doing here? So you, you told us that you've now ridden back to protect the lands. Your lands are protected from the brigands now. Um, what do you want out of this trial? What are you, what are you looking for, for us to do for you here? And basically what happened is Hoster Tully has sent these knights to court to ask for blessing to react, a blessing to go um, hunt this guy down and respond and shed blood uh, rather than um, kind of doing it on their own in vengeance. And um, Ned is thankful for that because it, it uh, means it's more of an official act of, of the crown if, if they take action now rather than just random people killing each other. And Ned not only gives them permission to do that, but gives them help. He orders a group uh, to go execute Gregory, strips him of all lands and titles, and orders his death. And he uh, assigns uh, four lords and uh, to get 20 of their own people and sends 20 of his own household guards, so 100 people, to ride out and execute Gregory Clegane. Before he can assign that, though, Loris volunteers to go instead, but uh, Ned turns him down and says, nope, we're going to send these 100 men. Loris, you're a valor. You've got valor. Uh, everyone, everyone knows that. You're a great young kid. But what you, what you seek, it stinks of vengeance, not justice. And I'm here to give the hands justice, uh, as indicated in the episode title. So he uh, he sends these guys off. Says, get started. It's better to do these quickly. So go do it now. And uh, at the end of the chapter, Varys notes that. Uh, Ned is a brave man. He would have sent Loras, who wanted to go, uh, or he would have sent Illyn Payne, who maybe feels snubbed because he's the one that's supposed to be issuing the king's justice. So that's how the chapter ends, uh, with this party being assembled to go hunt down Gregor Cleane uh, and basically take him out, take him down, do their do their stuff. <laughs> Independence Day. Independence Day. Thank you for picking that up. To take him... Take them out. Take them down. Do your do your stuff. Uh, so let's talk about the decision. Did 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 Ned have a whole lot of choices? He he's coming from an interesting spot here, right? So first of all, his he's got his own. You know, his wife has just taken Tyrion. His own men have just been murdered in the streets by Lannisters. Here's evidence of a, a Lannister bannerman. Um, you know, coming and and committing these atrocities. Uh, and he acts quickly and swiftly, as you would hope a king would, uh, to order justice. But is he is he acting a little bit in his own best interests as well? You mean in the sense that the Lannisters and the Starks have not gotten along well lately? Yes. You know, at first I'm thinking when when he's talking about hereby Gregor Kuglain is stripped of all lands and titles and da 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 and he needs to die. Stuff. I was like, geez, that's a little harsh for not having really any evidence besides hearsay that it's it's Clegane. But you know, the only evidence they really have is there's a really big guy leading this troop of brigands. Um, but then you you also got to consider 
what Eddard knows of Clegane. First of all, he is a Lannister bannerman, like you said. But this is a guy who, you know, in a jousting tournament not too long ago, cut his horse in half and then was about to go postal on a couple guys, including his own brother. Um, so this isn't a guy that you can really bring in for questioning. I think it's a, it's an either you leave him alone or you take him out. And maybe that's what Ned was thinking, but whew, it Credit. certainly wasn't what I was expecting. Credit to Matt for, uh, the anachronistic going postal, uh, nice usage. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, it's, it, it's evidence to me that it, it's, it's a judgment call, right? But it's a kind of judgment call that kings have to make all the time. And that's not the king. He's the sure. hand. But you see here, all, what we've seen leading up to this is a whole bunch of accounts of Mad King Aerys being a, uh, King Aerys being a crazy king and wanting to burn the whole town down, you know, and just being a bad king. Uh, we see evidence of Robert just being a neglectful king, running up debt, making all these bad decisions. And we get one chapter of Ned sitting in the Iron Throne, and not only, not only uh, you know, a whole day of seeing it, we get basically get to see him here one case. Um, and we've got this decisive action taken that feels, I, I don't know mm-hmm. what, I guess what I'm saying is I don't, as a reader, I feel biased, but it feels like the right thing, right? He's decisive. It feels like something a king would do. Yes, I agree with exactly. You. Yeah, it's interesting. title of this podcast of the justice of God's in hands, Scad. Thank you. Yeah. Choice. What do you think would have happened if Robert was sitting on the throne when that when that when uh, this case came forth? Well, he'd have ordered another glass of wine or a bottle. <laughs> uh-huh. I think he would have doubted the reports, um, just because I guess this is a land and a time without cameras and closed circuit television and <laughs> <laughs> like cops reliably reporting up the chain so that their testimony is believable but robert in because he is so in debt to the lannisters probably would have clung to the fact that there's no definitive reports that it's um so i love that ned was just like yep sounds sounds about right take him out (laughs) yeah Uh, strip him of his land and titles He's uh, go kill him. He's very familiar with uh, Lannisters ambushing brutally. <laughs> he's just seen it happen yeah. himself, yeah. and I also think that um, Ned's in a in a slightly impatient mood as well. Not saying that he made the decision rashly, but this is a guy who's got a shattered leg. He should, by all accounts, be in bed, uh, but he's sitting on this throne made of swords. Also very uncomfortable. He's he got to think his decision making thusly might be a little more severe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what? Kill him. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. I just wonder if, and this is genuine speculation, not just me trolling our audience. I wonder if this will bite him in the ass. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what decision he could have made that wouldn't bite him in the ass. It seems it's a, it's a, it's a tough <laughs> slot to be in. It's like, okay, I got this hearsay. Sounds likely that it's them. If I do nothing, what happens? You know, it just sound. It just seems it's a tough spot to be in. But that's why I think it seems very kingly that he made the choice he made. Um, he made, yeah, what he had to do. Yeah. Mm. 
but it, it does, they do say, you know, just timing, how, how interesting the timing is. They mentioned in the chapter that, you know, these, these poor villagers have been marched all the way to King's Landing. They think they're going to talk to the king who's married to, to basically the, the liege, she's, she's the liege lord of the person supposedly doing this. So supposedly they're coming to accuse his wife's family of murdering people. Like, they, they don't think they've got a chance in hell of getting anything out of, out of this trip. And it just so happens that the day they come to court, it isn't Robert sitting throne, it's Ned, and how lucky they are, right? Yeah. There's that funny bit in there, too, about the guy, he guy thinks it's the king, right? He's like, if it please your grace, he's like, I'm not the king, you dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a good example of probably how far removed the whole Game of Thrones, the whole you know, politics of the ruling class is removed from the day to day of small folk, yeah. People. Yep. yeah. Just kind of like it is with us today. Yeah, sure. for sure. Yeah. How much of a jerk is Robert, huh? So I know you love him, Scott, but makes his best buddy sit the Iron Throne with his shattered leg and everything. Like, yeah, I'm going to go hunt. I know that you're like grievously wounded but go sit on the sword chair for a while and listen to people yeah i don't i don't defend, I need to go I don't defend these actions by robert like I, he's a shitty king and pretty much not a very a good shitty friend. friend i just think he's <laughs> i just i i i don't I know. know i empathize i know with how him. you feel about it and yeah, it's totally fine with him and i just yep. love the imagery of him swinging that badass hammer around yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay ned just take some ibuprofen or something and you'll be all right yeah and just right. take care of this for me i need to go hunt yeah jeez it's just horrible <laughs> there's no there's no way around it one thing that i wanted to cover real quick um loris just volunt it kind of comes out of nowhere just like ned's about to about to you know issue this this proclamation and loris is like i'll go and the whole court just kind of looks at him and like, okay. And Peter calls him out. He's like, dude, you'll be dead if you go fight the mountain by yourself. And is is, is Loris looking for revenge for what happened in the lists? Is that the revenge they're talking about? I think so. I don't know uh, what other revenge it would be. Yeah, I don't either. I just, it, it seemed, yeah, I, I don't know either. It's not like they're yeah. ravaging Tyrol land, so. Right. Um. Well, first of all, I think we might need to take a step back and remind everyone of who Loras Tyrell is. Uh, has it only been the one time that we've seen him during the joust? The well, Night of Sansa's Flowers. Talking about I'm pretty sure Sansa's brought him up. Okay. Yeah. She has. She has. Okay. But he was the guy that lost uh, or that um, got knocked uh No, knocked Gregor off his horse um, in the joust. And then Gregor almost killed him. And he was, uh, Loras was saved by Gregor's brother, the Hound. He's the super hot one. Yeah, he's the super hot one. He's by all accounts a very valiant young knight. I think he's like sixteen or something. Um, very young, very dashing, uh, very skilled in combat and and in in jousting. Um, very hot. Very well beloved. He's kind of like Sweet he's kind of like the shining star. Uh, you know, the upcoming shining star. Um, so I wonder if it's just uh, wanting to prove himself. But I, I'm with Baelish though. Yeah, some sixteen-year-old kid against the biggest human on the on Westeros. Uh, you'd get crushed. I'll take Gregor yeah. every time. 
I don't know. The kid already has the skills. Now he just needs the chances to prove himself, right? Great, great warriors and, and great swordsmen become great because they're tested. True. Right. I think he's uh, that, very brave and not irrational. And that's that's what I was thinking too, you know, like the Wayne Gretzky's of the world always played in leagues above them. When he was like when Wayne Gretzky was like ten, he was playing in leagues with kids who were like fourteen and fifteen. And that was his choice, uh, to test himself. And yeah. I mean, this is what we're seeing from Tyrell is he's just gifted and he knows what he has to do. So But history mm-hmm. is also full mat of people failing. Uh, I agree. Under those same and, circumstances. Have you ever heard of Freddie Adu? I do tend to side with you. Um, I think that he would he would not win out against the against Gregor, against the mountain that rides. Yeah. Oh scad. You sounded so scad there. But history is also full of people who have failed. People people playing above above themselves in a league higher, specifically to what Matt's talking about. Gretzky's an example, one that succeeded. But there are tons of people that go to the NBA right out of high school and fail. Uh, and they there get are, crushed. Freddie yeah. Adu went to MLS. He was the youngest player in the history of MLS. He's 14 years old. He was supposed to be the next, you know, shining example for 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 U.S. soccer. And he's just gone on to have this disastrous career where he's transferred from club to club, never gets any playing time, and has basically just failed because you know a lot of people say because he tried to play up too quick and mm. couldn't couldn't handle it, and, and his confidence was shot. But but there are there are examples in both ways for sure. Yeah. And uh, the fact that I think George brings him up in this chapter means that we haven't seen the end of Loris Tyrell. I hope not. He's lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hot. So hot. So hot. Want to touch the hiney? <laughs> All right, let's move to Sansa, Brooke. Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's a gonna come for Sansa Stark. Here be looking like a totally and a daddy killed a wolfy Sansa Stark. So the chapter opens with Sansa gossiping to her friend Jean about what she witnessed while attending court that day. So what we just heard about in Eddard's chapter. And we do get a few nuggets dropped from her third party perspective. The most interesting is likely that Yorin, a recruiter for the Black Watch, comes to court begging for volunteers. And Ned asks all the knights in attendance if they'd like to go with Yorin, but surprise, surprise, no one takes him up on the offer. And in consolation, Ned offers Yorin the pick of the King's Landing dungeons, which is awesome. And, uh, yeah, indicative of why the Night's Watch is having some problems. The crux of this chapter, though, is the argument that Sansa and Arya get into the next morning. So when Sansa explains that the men from Winterfell are missing from breakfast because Ned sent them out to hunt down Gregor Clegane, Arya rightfully asks where the hunting party is for Jaime Lannister, who killed Ned's guard, and for the hound who killed her friend Micah. And Sansa tells her that it's not the same thing because Micah attacked Joffrey and Arya, again, rightfully tells Sansa that she's a liar. Sansa, in a dick move, tells Arya that she won't be calling Sansa names once Sansa's queen. So Arya hucks a blood orange at Sansa, nailing her in the forehead <laughs> and ruining her sister's dress. So awesome. So Arya. <laughs> Bullseye. Boom. Sansa reasonably retaliates by telling Arya 
that Arya should have been the one put down instead of Lady. It's... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I fought with my siblings too, but it's never quite escalated to wishing that they were dead and saying that to their face. I'll take over reactions for 500, Alex. Easy does it. I know, right? Brutal. So Septimore Dane, who typically favors Sansa and bullies Arya, sends both of them to their rooms for this mess. And uh, they are sent for by Ned later that day. Uh, Ned is not interested in hearing about their infighting and promptly drops the bomb that he's sending them back to Winterfell and that he's breaking Sansa's engagement with Joffrey. So Arya seems pretty cool with it, so long as she can bring Syria Perel. But Sansa is panicking. She says she doesn't want to leave because she loves Joffrey with the purity of a legendary romance. But it's really because she's missing her opportunity for the opulence and lavish lifestyle of court life. So uh, when Arya generously tries to console her, even after Sansa told her earlier that day that she wishes Arya was dead, uh, Arya tries to console her with the fact that they'll see everyone that they left behind in Winterfell, including Hordor. Sansa loses it and says that Arya should probably just marry Hordor. And I agree. Arya should marry Hordor. Um, and that's the end of this pulsing chapter of teen angst. Uh, oh, yeah. And I also want to mention uh, Ned has a little murmured line in there after Sansa mentions that Joffrey is nothing like Robert, his father, uh, who to her is just an old drunken king. And he says to himself, gods out of the mouths of babes. So we won't go too deep into a discussion about this little nug. But uh, kids, keep reading on to the next chapter because you're going to be rewarded with some explanations and some sweet, sweet satisfaction. Yeah, like literally turn the page. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about it in two weeks, to be quite honest. (laughs) So Ned is breaking the engagement between Joffrey and Sansa, which is, in my eyes, a really big friggin' deal. And I believe that this would be a massive insult from the Starks to the king, right? And uh, somebody mentioned in their notes that it could possibly even be illegal. So is this is this just it for Ned? Like, he's had enough of, of Robert, uh, you know, taking off, going hunting, killing young pregnant women, and that's it. We're done. My daughter is no longer engaged to your son, and I'm sending them back home. Which we, we were already aware of his intentions there, but never aware of his intention to break the engagement. So on a scale of one to wow, how big a deal is this? Uh. (laughs) I'll I'll go with wow. I mean, I hate to be (laughs) inflammatory, but I'll go with wow. I mean, uh, I think, I think Ned sees a lot of things kind of building, right? And even in the last chapter where he ordered the, you know, the, the death of, of Gregor Clegane, there's a lot of stuff that's just starting to catch fire. And I think he sees that and he's like, this is going to explode. And I, I think he maybe believes all bets are going to be off in the near future for any of this. Cause it's all a powder keg and going to explode. Let's get out of here. Sure. When the dust settles, then we'll reassess everything because I think he knows With, it's going to explode. Yeah. I think it harkens back 
a little bit to what happened in the last Eddard chapter or, or the chapter where um, Jamie ambushed Ned and his men. And I don't think we touched on this enough in the in the last podcast when we talked about it. And that is Jamie wanted to do something visible that everybody would see. He attacked Eddard in the in wide open. He let Baelish run off and tell the city watch, didn't even care. He didn't, you know, like corner him in some dark corner of the castle and beat him up or anything. Jamie did something wide out in the open. He wanted everyone to know that the Lannisters were responding to the Starks in a very severe way. And Ned realizes that now. And he knows that if Sansa joins this family of the Baratheons and Lannisters, they essentially now have a hostage against the Starks. Mm. And he's like, nope, ain't even going to do it. Don't even want to chance it. Uh, he sees that this is very severe and and he's not going to let his daughter get anywhere close to being put in that situation. Good point, Matt. Yeah, he is probably thinking big picture on this one, not just a... But I, but I think it does it does smack of treason. I mean, it's it's basically like sure. open yeah. rebellion. <laughs> which Yeah, which makes the decision that much more, like you said, severe and intense. And it's like, man, you're breaking a betrothal with the king. You know, run back to Winterfell and lock the door, man, because it's could potentially be not pretty at all. And I will just say here, because I feel like it's my responsibility now, I'm a little bit disappointed in Sansa that she's not arguing with the fact that she's just being passed around like property. Sure. I mean, I get it, but... She's totally bought into this being queen thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I feel like Arya would argue against it, but it doesn't matter. This is one thing where I know we don't talk about the HBO series very much, but uh, as I was watching this, I rewatched the first season. I borrowed Scaddy's DVDs and watched it. And one thing that I found and that the, they pointed out in the commentary that it, as the show goes on and in King's Landing, Sansa's hair and her dress becomes more and more like King's Landing as she kind of adopts more of the King's Landing lavish hairstyles and things like that as, as episode to episode and kind of a nod to how she's, really enjoying this life and really wants to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, to be fair to Sansa and I'm, you know, up to now I'm the biggest Sansa what? around. What? But to be fair to <laughs> Sansa, the everything, edge of my seat. everything that she's ever been taught is about this courtly, this courtly behavior and, you know, the way, the way life should be. And she's finally living it right after being in Winterfell. She's finally living these, these kind of dreams that she's had. And to just have that taken out from underneath you, just like, just like nothing. I was gonna be queen. I'm in King's Landing. Rich gowns, gemstones, every storybook, <laughs> you know, knights and everything. And now all of a sudden, no, back to Hodor, who again, <laughs> throw it, throw it to the back to the show. Uh, the actor playing Hodor, awesome. He does an it's, awesome it's, job. It's everything Sansa's ever wanted, you know. So. This is heartbreaking for her. Someone in the notes challenged me um, as to if Sansa's boy craziness was realistic. Yeah. It absolutely is. So here's the facts. Girls are just as hormonal as boys at that age, especially on the cusp of puberty. And certainly they only have one thing on their mind, which is 
sex and romance and and kissing and cute boys and certainly they're going to judge the valor of knights on just how handsome and young they are but here's the thing well girls are as equally as hormone driven as boys boys are encouraged to impress girls to win them through sports or in, in the case of the world of westeros nightly agility i guess Beaten up on a baker's boy or a butcher's boy. Accomplishments. But girls are taught to like focus that hormonal energy just into shaping themselves for servitude. <laughs> like you play with oh. Barbies so you learn how to be pretty and 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 uh subservient, and you play with dolls so you learn how to uh raise children for your husband, that sort of thing. And I think that's really changing nowadays. Now girls can focus that energy into pursuing a career in like astrophysics or something, whatever they want to do, whatever their, their passion is. But I know back in my days, mumble, mumble years ago, that was not the case. <laughs> it took a long time to unlearn that behavior. And I, I think that George is writing Sansa from the same perspective I had as a young girl who, when I was Sansa's age, yeah, all I was, obsessed with was making out with boys guys i made out with a boy during the movie alive the one where they like turn cannibal dude i know that's awesome (laughs) so edgy brooke (laughs) thank you (laughs) (laughs) well i have thus far uh avoided making out with any boys um but I, i it would be okay if you wanted to, Scud. Oh, thanks. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your support. Yeah. Um, thank and thanks for the commentary, Brooke. Very, uh, very interesting stuff. One of the things that 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 is interesting about Sansa is she seems so obsessed with her infatuation with Joffrey, but has no problem also just being completely twitterpated with Loras, right? Like she's. She's so in love with Joffrey, supposedly, right? But also well, can't let Loras go. She's in love with the idea of Joffrey, as has been. Yeah. been. But yeah, Loras. She's in love with being the queen. Yeah. Yeah, just think, you know what? Just take away her gender assignment. And she is hormone driven, just like any young boy, just as I'm sure you guys experienced at her age. So yeah, she'd be all over as many cute dudes as possible. Well, I certainly didn't have the upward mobility she had uh, at, at 12, but um, <laughs> all right. So uh, one thing I just want to drop in, we, we mentioned uh, Peter Baelish and, and uh, his uh, proclivity toward uh, toward Tully's. Uh, we've, we've heard that Sansa has the Tully look. The creeper strikes back again in this chapter, kind of, what does he do? He pets her head or something. I don't know. Just like creepy runs and again. his hand down her face or something like that. It's yeah, super creepy. And and I'll defend Sansa again because here I get one of the first things that she does that I absolutely agree with. It's one line. It said it made Sansa feel uneasy. <laughs> <laughs> For once, I'm like, good girl. Finally, yeah. I can agree with something you're feeling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else uh, from this group on the Sansa chapter? You want to talk about um, Arya and uh, I the, did uh, like the point that Arya brings up. I think it's what you're going to say yep. that no one's going after Jamie right now. 
after what, like I said before, happened in a very public place. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good, it's a good question. It's, uh, you know, her brain is just, you know, she's thinking about it from a very personal perspective. To me, what, what Ned is responding to with, with these Lannister brigands is a much more serious thing. It's hundreds of people. It's whole villages being burned. Sure. It's a, on a much bigger scale. And so, you know, I think this is a bigger and a more important thing for him to be responding to, but uh Yeah tit for tat it's similar behavior and it should have been i mean worked out the same way the difference is though the difference one of the differences at least is ned has the chance to act this way because he is acting as the king sitting on the mm-hmm. iron throne for that day he was not acting as the king when those other things happened but still people died in the streets lannister and stark and yeah. nothing has happened if i remember correctly all robert said to him was Work it out with Jamie Ned or something along those lines, right? I I believe he said you're even because both sides had men killed. He said, leave it alone. Justice doesn't need to be served because the crimes even themselves out. Wow. Yeah. Yep. All right. That's all I got. All right. Uh, Well, should we move on to uh, Davos After Dark? Matt, do you want to give a reminder of uh, next week's chapters? I do. So if you weren't already sick of the Eddard song, boy, you're going to be next week oh, man. Uh, or next episode. <laughs> His friends call him Ned. Uh, Never. We have three Eddard chapters that we are covering next week. Eddard's 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters. Uh, then we're getting back to Danny. Oh, I, I love getting back to Danny. I always feel like her stuff's so few and far between. Ooh. Only on her fifth chapter. And then we're getting some more John, so uh, that'll be fun. Team John right here. Yep. Oh, one quick thing uh, that I did look up. Um, According to the Wiki of Ice and Fire, you can yield in a uh, trial by combat. I just want to point that out. Oh. It says uh, a trial by combat ends when either party yields – or is killed. Sorry, oh man, I just hit the wrong button on my iPad. Uh, it says when they either they can yield or get killed, um, or when the accuser takes back his accusation, or um, presumably when the accused declares himself guilty, so confesses. Well, uh, I but should I, point out which I, none of none of which happened in that in the battle with with Vardis Egan. Uh, Egan never did uh, surrender. He was no. rendered incapable of defending himself, but he didn't ever say I surrender or I give in or anything. So he never gave up. Uh, he didn't yield. Braun did what he had to do. Still on Braun's team. <laughs> <laughs> no mercy. Full life. life. So I didn't want to bring that up. Uh, I, w- I was wrong in my statement that they had to be killed for the trial to be over. Quick work, Matt. Nice. All right. All right. Davos after dark. Davos after dark. Davos after dark. Uh, where do you guys want to start? We've got. Uh, how about? How about we? Oh, there's just so much stuff. You want to start with out of the mouth mouth of babes? Yes. Well, we're probably going to get really into it next week. You want to just leave it? Well, it's up to you. It, well, I'll just I'll just say one thing, and it'll be quick. So, <laughs> people have been saying basically this same line that Sansa says to him over and over for many chapters. 
in in the chapter where he's having breakfast with with Robert, Robert says the same thing. This kid is nothing like me. I can't I can't tell how I could have had a child like this, right? And mm-hmm. yet it takes it takes Sansa's statement of she's nothing like that guy. There's my impression again. Um, <laughs> uh, to to really bring it out. So it's just interesting. I don't know. It's maybe the the wall of evidence just finally knocked him over. I don't know the wave of evidence, but uh, we can leave it there. If you want to focus on it next week, you know, next, next episode's going to be so deep into that. I think it'll be a good subject for next week. All right. We'll leave it uh, next episode. So the, uh, I, I had a, the, an interesting um, perspective on the Alyssa's tears, which I, I missed this the first time and would have, because you don't know this, but going back after reading Catelyn's story in the future, the Alyssa's tears story is basically Catelyn's story too. Uh, Alyssa Aaron had seen her husband, her brothers, and all her children slain, and in life she had never shed a tear. So in death the gods had decreed that she would know no rest until her weeping watered the black of the veil. So basically it's the same thing Catelyn goes through, or, or at least she she thinks. All her children dying around her, uh, her husband dying around her, and I never thought of this until re until rereading this story of Alyssa's tears but i don't ever remember catelyn crying about it do, do you ever remember catelyn crying mm, trying to think uh, i think she was taken down too quick after rob at the red wedding i don't think she had time well she had time to cry about bran and Ra- uh, bran and rickon who she believes to be dead she had time to cry about robert or, or sorry about ned and i don't i don't think they ever talk about that it's just a, an interesting parallel of uh, you know, she's telling the story of, of Alyssa's tears and I think she relives it herself and it's clever, yeah. clever telling up. by clever telling by George. It is cool though. Indeed. Yeah. Good catch. Yeah. I'm interested to, to pay more attention to that now on the reread in terms of if she yeah. has those moments of, or if I'm pulling, pulling this uh, out of my ass, very understandable weakness. Uh, but you know, regardless, I think one of the reasons you can't remember and I can't either is because she does manage to exhibit such strength, um, despite knowing what she knows. So, yep. I know what kind of emotional state of mind I'd be in if, heaven forbid, that happened to me. So, so uh, <sighs> how about, is this the beginning of the end for Ned? Did it happen sooner or later? So... Yeah, that's that came from me, and I didn't write it out very well. Uh, but that's more of what I was getting at. Is is this really that defining moment that sets Ned down that path that he can't go back up, um, or did it, it was it an event that happened sooner? Was it when Catelyn took Tyrion? Was that really the start of things? It's definitely a good discussion topic. Well, I'd say it was Ned agreeing to come and be to go to King's Landing. <laughs> yeah, in the first place. It was um, John Aaron. It was John Aaron convincing Robert to marry Cersei. <laughs> <laughs> it was them nominating Robert to sit the throne. It yeah. was Robert becoming king. <laughs> I mean, it's, we're going back so far; it seems so fatalistic. But um, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just been on this path for a long time. And certainly a lot of people have made choices that have led to it. I think I think Ned has finally, uh, you know, the straw that broke the back, I think, is sending the girls home, breaking off the engagement. Um, maybe you could argue ordering the death of Gregor Clegane, but I, I think it's I think it's sending the girls home and, and choosing to leave leave King's Landing himself uh, uh, when he can. Doesn't Robert die right away? Doesn't he get poisoned, like... Like in the next couple of chapters, yes. Robert ever finds out that uh, uh, 
engagement is over. Yeah, not poisoned, but... Uh, uh, hurts during the hunt. Yes, right. And there's some speculation that they were over-serving him purposefully, right? Which is like poison, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think in the end, Ned has realized that it's the end. And so he's making these decisions. And now there really is no, no easy way out. There's no shortcut home. Uh, it's all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see him making very decisive choices in this last chapter, but, in this block of chapters. But it's an interesting that, question. Could he have made a different choice to save it? I don't know. It's hard to think about that. Him getting his leg broken meant that he can't steal away in the night, but that's what he was planning to do. So now he's kind of incapacitated, and he's kind of, I think, like you mentioned, he just wants to get his family safe, but he knows that he's he's probably done for. Yep. Yeah, he noted he he even says I'm getting you girls out. Um maybe he has an idea that maybe his time's up. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe that's why he's rushing so headlong into things. <laughs> he's like I'm done, so I'm just going to do what I got to do. Uh somebody put in their notes um Tyrion's wife not actually being a whore. So oh, it's just that rushing, part. right? Oh, I'm I'm actually mad that Jamie ever told him, and I think I believe no, its reaction was the same. I think it's given Tyrion something to live for. Uh, no, I think well, I I believe, and I hate to do this to our audience, but as I recall, when Jamie told Tyrion, Tyrion was furious. Yes, that it happened. And it also completely ruined their brotherly relationship. Yes. So, I mean, either way, it's it's a bad deal for Tyrion. But had Jamie not told Tyrion, they would still be talking. Yeah, but I, I to me, it's like um, uh, what's the analogy? But, but, but it, admitting a, admitting a poison, right? But it's too late for Tyrion now. Like he's been so horribly disfigured, and I can all bring up. Peter Dinklage, way too hot to be playing Tyrion. Tyrion in the books, by the point that he finds out that uh, uh, that his wife was not actually a prostitute, has had like his nose cut off. Yeah, like half his face is face. Yeah. yeah, like he's done unless he meets a blind girl. Yeah, but I but I still think it gives him it gives him hope in humanity, right? She did care about him. And and this this lie that he's been living about no one could ever care for me, well, yeah, he's disfigured now and uglier even than he was. There's hope in him now that, hey, that was real. I it is capable. Yeah. I am capable of getting something real. Yeah. I think it gives him something and, to live for. And the unfortunate part, though, is that may have severed Jamie and Tyrion forever. Um, and Jamie's, you know, I, I, I like Braun in, in kind of the, Oh, he's so cool type of way. But my favorite arc is Jamie's and he's so far down this path of redemption at this point in the novels when he reveals, um, uh, the truth of everything to Tyrion and you see Jamie just trying to almost like he's just trying to come clean and, yeah. and start fresh and everything. And what's tragic about this is, you know, this genuinely brotherly love, probably the only real love that that Tyrion's ever felt from another human being is the love that he had with his brother Jaime. Mm-hmm. Um, Jaime's on this redemptive path that's really starting to peak at this point, and 
then it just all crumbles around him. And that's what's really tragic about this whole thing is, and I don't know if, like you guys said, this is such a revelation. I don't know if Tyrion and Jamie, if they ever meet up again, can come back from that. But 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 I would I would I would take issue with the fact that the admission is the shame. What's a shame was the original lie that happened decades ago. Right? Yeah, but what's the admission? Done. The coming the coming clean. That's the best part about it, right? Sure. Yeah, and that's and, what makes it so tragic. And if and if it's well, I, I would say it's more tragic if it never came up. Oh, uh, Matt, can you talk about what you think Tyrion is living for? I, I guess we can talk about it here. I think that despite, and I'm not saying he loves his dad, I think he still hates him. I think he desperately wants to impress him. Hmm. It's not a popular theory. I know. But he desperately wants to do something that his father approves of. He doesn't want a hug from his dad. He wants his dad to be proud of him. That's what I think. The only consistent characteristic among daddy issues is that they're all complicated. So I would agree that that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But he still hates him, and maybe oh, that's yeah. why Tyrion is the way he is, is because he's conflicted. He, The man he hates most in probably the whole world is also the one he most wants to impress. Yeah, I was golfing with a coworker I'm not fond of. I've never hit so straight and so far as when they are watching. I'm just <laughs> dying to impress. <laughs> wow. Uh, so... Uh, one of you noted that uh, Arya is excited to go home, but she never will. Uh, I'm not ready to give up on Arya never getting to go home. Oh, I know that. Who is talking to? Who is like really frustrated about like Arya's path? I love it. I love oh, no, that I, she's trying yeah, to be an assassin. I'm very frustrated by it. Oh, yeah. I absolutely believe that she will be back because she has to meet up again with Nymeria. Like it has to happen. It will. Yeah, definitely. But metaphorically, she's never going home. She's gone down a path that she can never go back to just being Arya Stark. Well, I don't know know. about that. I I feel like Arya is extremely good at compartmentalizing. And even all of this assassin stuff that she's learning, she's still keeping herself at the core, right? And I think she's going to be able to use these skills to accomplish what she wants to accomplish and still be herself. It will, it will affect her. Sure. It will paint her in a certain way. I think she's strong enough to, to maintain who she is. Well, and maybe this is who she's meant to be. Uh, she's always been different. So maybe we're trying to compartmentalize her and saying that she needs to go back to be in this little Westerosi girl when maybe what she was meant to be all along was who she's actually becoming. I Which would compartmentalize well. her my way. <laughs> <laughs> but it would fit well with Leanna actually being a really accomplished warrior, too. Yeah. Yep. Um, anything else you guys want to do? I think we've done good. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, just because I was curious. Um, Sansa's telling the story in the court about, um, about Yorin and how he's asking for troops and all these other cases that came up, and then she just randomly mentions two brothers from Dorne that swore their swords to the throne. D- is that just throwaway, or is that somebody that comes up later? Do you guys know? That's one thing that I wasn't able to look into. Yeah. It's probably mm-hmm. throwaway. I just read it, I'm like, oh, that's the kind of thing Gurm sometimes just slips in and later will leverage. It could be. But anyway. It could be. If any of you uh, listeners know, you know, let yeah, us know. let us know. Ping us. 
Yeah. Please do our work for us. Yeah. 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 I'll definitely be looking into it, but uh, you guys should be active participants in all of this too, I think. So, uh, we didn't hit the clansmen and what they're up to now. Do you want to hit that or are we done? I think we're about done, but, um, you know, Lannister always pays his debts. I'm interesting and interested in seeing if what, uh, what happens with them. Well, what happened is they left. Right. <laughs> they're no longer in King's Landing. They left, you know, with, as Tyrion's fate crumbled a little bit towards yep. the where we are at the end of the series um, that's been written so far, uh, they left and supposedly went back to the Vale. I, I, I think it's a, a debt Tyrion's going to have to go forcefully find them and repay if he ever wants to, but it looks unlikely. It certainly does look unlikely. Tyrion will be back across the ocean. Yeah. Cool. We'll see. We have it from Brooke. You heard it here first. Tyrion will be <laughs> back across the ocean. And Arya, too. I have a very precise and clear vision of how this series is ending. <laughs> I actually Arya mentioned and this. Arya back together. Turing I, back across the ocean. I actually mentioned this to Matt, and uh, hopefully George would, is not listening to this podcast, nor ever will, but hopefully he doesn't hear this part specifically. If he did die before he finished the series, I already told Matt, I'm not going to watch the HBO show. I'm not going to read if somebody else writes the ending. I'm just going to write my own bullet points of things <laughs> that happen to the end to satisfy my own worldview. Why not? Just because I don't, I just I've can't done. handle anyone so other than George telling me how this ends. Fiction. Just tell it like it is. What's that? You're going to be writing your own fan fiction. No, I, 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 I made sure to tell Matt, no, I'm not writing my own no, fan fiction. That's exactly what you just described, and I love it. No, they're yeah, just bullet it, it points. It is, though, Scott. They're just bullet points. <laughs> bullet points. Arya but comes they, back, It is going to be this. personal fan fiction. It is going to be personal. It's just Damn for it, Scott. You guys. This is how it starts. This is bullet points is gateway fan fiction. <laughs> I don't have I don't have the skill to write fan fiction, so it will. But I respect that, Scott. That's kind of along the same lines as I as I do with Star Wars now. Is who's going to tell me what canon is? I know what my canon is, and I'm sticking with it. This in terms from a of guy Star that's Wars, read all of the Star Wars novels, everyone, all of our listeners. Yeah, and is, Matt, yeah. Matt is very hurt. Matt no Disney executive is going to tell me now that the <laughs> books that I grew up on are now non canonical. They're I'll the decide what's canonical. What legends. legends. They call them legends. The legends series. These yeah. are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah, some fat Disney executive sitting <laughs> in his office trying to tell me what Star Wars canon is. No, I don't I think so. Series. In all fairness, I think it was Kathleen Kennedy who's been involved in the Star Wars stuff since day one, but still. Well, she can't tell me either. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh thanks everybody for listening it's been a good good episode and uh we'll look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks good night yes good night everyone bye hospitals in winter and the feeling that it's all a lot of oysters but no
like you should. Nah, nah, nah.